I know that I can't really see what's directly in front of me. So I have to sort of move my head a lot. Obviously, I don't run with headphones. I have to be a lot more alert of what's around me and who's moving around. You know, and then those hybrid cars, of course, which you never hear coming. That was Will Barkan, and this is episode 25 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Sometimes life just drops interesting and oh-so-inspiring people into your life. Will Barkin is a guest that I, Kim, have wanted to bring on the podcast for a very long time because I really think people need to hear his story. He is an accomplished ultra runner from San Francisco, California, who is legally blind. He was diagnosed with Stargardt's disease at age 10 and has had progressive vision loss since then. He has been legally blind since high school, but has not let his disability limit his lifestyle. In addition to completing the Pacific Coast Trail in four months, he has completed the Boston Marathon, Tahoe Rim Trail Endurance Run 100, Lake Sonoma 50, Sean O'Brien 100K, and many, many more races. He runs with a guide and has not let his anatomical vision loss limit his vision for what he can accomplish in racing and in life. In this episode, we talk about the unique challenges of running with vision loss in urban versus trail environments, what it's like to run with a guide, the hazards of falling, and how Will has developed resiliency for running and for life within the context of his disability. Without further ado, here is Will Barkin in his podcast debut, and we hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm so excited to have you on our podcast tonight. There aren't many people on the planet that I've enjoyed meeting, listening to, and getting to know more than you. And before we even get into letting you tell everybody more about who you are, I'm going to give our listeners a bit of background on how we met, because I think it's kind of a hilarious, fun story. Wouldn't you agree? I I would say so. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So way back in um, August of 2016, I believe it was, you've all heard how I did the fat dog 70 miler in Nanning Park, British Columbia. And when I was done that race, uh, me and my friends, of course, were starving and we ordered literally half the restaurant in food and we were going to have a big celebration party. And the Manning Park Lodge is just across the border into Canada from the northern terminus of the Pacific Crest Trail, correct, Will? Correct. Is it like the first pretty much accommodations that you can easily get to once you finish oh. the PCT? Yeah, it's the only. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's it's like another, I want to say like eight or nine miles. And that's you pretty much just hit dirt roads and then the, the highway through Manning Park. Right. So you, you finally finish the PCT and then you still have to hike another eight or nine miles to get to a bathroom and a restaurant and a, and a hotel bed. And so anyhow, I'm in the laundry room washing the laundry. This is the way I remember it anyways, washing my race gear. And we're waiting for, I don't know how much pizza and beer and like food of every kind to be delivered to our suite. And I run into Will and his buddy. What was your buddy's name? You know, his, his real name is Tomas, but he goes by yeah. Zipka, which is Polish for little frog. 
betrayal name. Anyways, and I took one look at him and I was like, they looked thin, rather thin. And a little bit, I don't know, bedraggled, uh, but but like like hardcore, like you know, toughened by the trail. And I just was like, I don't know why, but I was like, we're having this party. Come join us. You look like you need food. Come eat with us. <laughs> and when somebody finishes a hundred miler, as you now know, Will, like you're so like hooped up on endorphins and serotonin, and you're just like share the love with everybody. So you ended up um, coming up to our suite, hanging out with us for I don't know how many hours, eating and regaling us with so many stories of the Pacific Crest Trail and your experience with um, government work overseas, which you'll get into a little bit later, I'm sure. But I remember the stories were so wild. We even had discussions after of like, was this guy legit? Like, was he for real? (laughs) It's a good question. So anyways, and you know, and then and then to fast forward a bit, we ended up keeping in touch. You were so gracious to um, help me out with with some gear and some support for for Tahoe last summer. We both actually it's two summers. Two summers. Yeah. Yeah. We did the Tahoe (laughs) hundred miler together. And uh, there's so much we could talk about. But why don't I stop talking now and let you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I'm from San Francisco originally, you know, grew up here um, in the city, family still in the area, all the good stuff, uh, Episcopal school and Boy Scouts and eventually things like track and cross country. Went to college, lots of different places, eventually ended up on the East Coast, worked in uh, government for a long time, about nine years, left the government, came back to California, hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. Nice, you know, like... Um, okay, okay, slow down. Too many, down. Too many a, things. Yeah, there's a reason why you hiked the Pacific Coast Trail. So let's just... Oh, yeah. Let's go a little bit into your government work experience, because I know this isn't specifically running related, but I know it's a key kind of thing in your story that led you to the PCT, which ended up leading you to the wilderness, which led you to ultra running, right? Correct, correct. So I was under the mistaken understanding that you actually worked for the military, but you didn't. You worked as a civilian. Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's a complicated arrangement. So I was a civilian employee of the Department of Defense uh, for quite a long time, and then I worked for the State Department as a contractor before that. But most of my career I spent based out of Washington, D.C. and then overseas in Afghanistan, basically as a an intelligence professional, you know, professional research analyst, um, mostly just trying to help people figure things out. Um, and I spent almost all of my time assigned to or supporting military units and commands, you know, helping American forces and other NATO countries, including Canada, um, sort of better understand, interact with uh, the culture and people they were uh, dealing with. So why did you end up leaving that career? Ooh, yeah. I mean, the short answer is pretty hard burnout. I spent a lot of years building up expertise and credibility in that field. And you, um, you know, you're there specifically to provide, you know, good advice to people in charge and sometimes um, some very specialized uh, military units so they can make good decisions. And it, it does get frustrating over a long period of time if they keep making uh, the same bad decision. And with a job like that, it requires um, a tremendous amount of commitment. I mean, you just have to be fully committed to the job and like most demanding jobs when you work for someone else, um, 
you know, it'll never really give back as much as you put into it. My tempo was I would deploy, I would come home for a little while, I'd deploy again, and I got very used to living a very sort of high stress <laughs> lifestyle, which was all consuming and work. There were not other things. You have mentioned that, you know, once you left the that kind of situation with burnout, that eventually brought you onto the PCT. Yeah. Which I want to get into a bit more later, but <laughs> if you could maybe, we mentioned a bit in our intro about, you know, the fact that you are considered legally blind Correct. and you lost your sight at some point in your life. So can you please just kind of tell us a little bit about that next? Yeah. So, um, so I have Stargardt's disease, which is a degenerative retinal condition uh, that basically um, limits focal vision, but leaves peripheral vision mostly intact. But it basically means you have a very hard time seeing stuff right in front of you. So it means, you know, to read things, you can't, after a certain point, you're not going to be reading plain text. You need assistive devices, specialized software, um, obviously you can't drive. Recognizing faces is a challenge. There's lots of other variations. But um, when I was growing up, my older brother, Andrew, was diagnosed with Stargardt's first when he was 10. And he's just three years older than I am. And not too many years after that, my sister Phoebe and our younger sister were also diagnosed with Stargardt's disease. So, and I sort of, I knew that, at, you know, about, you know, fourth grade, about age nine, 10. But at that time, my vision was, you know, not nearly what it is today. It's a progressive condition. So, um, you know, at that point, I was still reading without any assistive devices and stuff like that, running around just like kids do. And doing all those things. And, um, you know, school, certain things like school are particularly challenging at that age. And actually they, they stay more challenging until they're older. But, um, but, you know, I was, I was uh, playing soccer and baseball and I, you know, my dad was sort of had excellent foresight in knowing that baseball was not going to be like a long-term thing I would enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, so against my wishes, he pulled me out of little league and took me to a track club, uh, like a you know independent track club, not affiliated with the school. And that was, you know, fifth grade. And all I remember was the coaches were really mean. It's really hard running upstairs and the bleachers and the track. And But, you know, you just kind of, you know, it was what I did after school. And so I kept doing it. And, um, you know, after a while, it's just kind of like how I, you know, Whenever I get in trouble or I was acting out, my dad would just be like, tickle up around the block, you know, and it would just be a constant running was a stress relief and, uh, you know, discipline activity. And then by about seventh, eighth grade, I mean, all I wanted to do was run. So I ran, you know, cross country and, um, you know, track and then ran all the way through high school, um, you know, to the point where it's sort of like, even at that age, like, you know, as a teenager, 16, 17, I would always go run if I was like frustrated or... (laughs) doing all those growing up things. So yeah, running, running was a pretty early introduction, which was, you know, directly correlated with vision loss. And then in terms of sort of hitting legally blind, which is, which is an important thing to kind of mention, you know, a lot of people use a lot of different terminology um, about sight loss and vision disabilities. Ultimately, uh, you know, legally blind in the U S and Canada the definition is basically anyone who has uh, 2,200 or worse acuity in their vision or less than uh, 20 degrees uh, field of vision. So basically, 
you know, and that's with the best correction available. So, so for instance, like if your vision can be corrected better than that, it's not, not considered legally blind, it might be considered low vision. It's another category, but generally, but just for common parlance, like it's easy to refer to me as blind, which is confusing because I can see some, uh, but it, it does kind of help settle the argument quickly. And rather than explaining all the intricacies of, you know, degenerative retinal conditions, what that means. Is your vision still changing or has it stabilized? It stabilized a lot more. Adolescence and early 20s was kind of when I experienced the most vision loss. But yeah, it's it's relatively stable now. You know, it's hard to compare it because it's such a gradual change. Um, but right now I see about um, 2650 in my better eye and about 2800 in my not as good eye. And how was that throughout high school? So your introduction Ugh. to running, yeah, you must have noticed a change as you were becoming a runner, yes? Yeah, I mean, um, I was still, I was starting to use some uh, like assistive reading technology, but it really hadn't impacted my, um, you know, getting around too much. There was a chain at track that actually was designed to prevent vehicles from coming on the track that would go up and go down which I definitely tripped on one time, <laughs> you know, not catching this like fine line of chain that was up and it, you know, you were racing someone to try and get back on the track after doing like a, a 3k lap or something. But yeah, I mean, for cross country at that age, I mean, um, you know, I ran all kinds of courses and they're high, they're 5k, you know, high school courses. So it's not like technical single track or anything, but I don't really remember falling a whole lot. I mean, it was pretty, uh, pretty consistent at that age. So you didn't really feel limited by your vision at that point? No. I mean, I knew there were, I think one of the hard things and what I knew is that there were just career fields and options that would be unavailable to me. I always wanted to be a soldier, but knew kind of very instinctively, very young that that wasn't going to be a possibility. So I focused on other things and I did, um, like I said, I did stuff through scouts and um, I did... uh, emergency medical training, got certified as an emergency, uh, as an EMT uh, here in the States. And uh, then also knew that like, even though I got the cert, it'd be difficult to work in that field with a, with a vision issue. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, at that age, it wasn't such a big deal. Cause you know, you live in high school, the world's, I went to a boarding school, actually was very lucky to go to a special place down in Ojai, California, just inland of uh, Santa Barbara with the Los Padres National Forest borders the campus. And the trails there are incredible. Um, and I really, you know, I just picked up trailing there all the time. And I, I mean, I, I just, it was awesome. Yeah, it's very meditative and sort of focusing your thoughts and recharging and all that. Mm-hmm. So you went from like in, in high school, you were on the track team, you did cross country, yep. it was all good. And then I happen to know that you went on to do so many <laughs> ultra events. We could spend the next like, 80 hours talking about all of the the different events that you've done. But talk to us kind of about that transition. It seemed like it was sort of regular cross-country track stuff in high school. And then what led you to wanting to run ultras? I had a cross-country coach for one year who was an ultra runner. And he knew I loved doing trails. And I think once you're in the off season, he basically just said, let's go on a trail run. He took me on a 15 mile trail run, which seemed you know, ridiculous. He said, oh, you need a bottle of water and here's a donut. And I was like, a donut? And he's like, yeah, a donut. And we brought his dog and I was like, this is the craziest thing I ever did. And then, you know, like a month later, I ran a local 20K trail race out at Point Magoo, which is this, you know, other area outside of Santa Barbara. And um, 
Yeah, and that kind of just set me on the, like, I like running trails more than, you know, running flat dirt roads and, and road racing. And, uh, you know, I eventually ended up in university in Washington, D.C. Uh, on the East Coast. And there are trails, but not a lot. And I just kind of became reformed into a road runner. And I got a crazy idea to say, like, uh, oh, you know, I'll, I'll go run this trail race back home when I'm home on summer vacation. That's just turned 21. And it was the uh, Tumulta 50K in the Marin Headlands, just north of San Francisco. And it's, you know, it's a 50K course with like uh, something like 9,000 feet of, you know, elevation gain. It's not, uh, you know, it's not the most technical of trail, but it, it is a daunting amount of up and down. Yeah, it's not huge mountains there, but no. um, deceivingly soul-sucking climbs, really. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, just one after another, you know, and just... Yeah, so I, I, I DNF'd at mile 21, and, and, you know, my dad drove out and picked me up. And it was really funny, too, because he came out and said, I'm so proud of you for quitting, son. I'm always worried you're going to injure yourself doing one of these random outdoor things or running things you do. I'm like, oh, thanks, Dad. Little like, did he know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was funny, too, because he said, I've been watching people run by, and I don't think any of these people have real jobs. Uh, <laughs> But it didn't stop there. It didn't discourage you. So uh, no, no. I mean, well, high level yeah. of the different races that you did over the years. I switched into, uh, you know, I had a good buddy and we, we got into, um, you know, I, I decided a marathon is probably more reasonable. So, uh, you know, we signed up for the Vermont City Marathon in 2007. I was working in D.C. and, we, you know, trained all winter on ice and, you know, slipped and fell and did all that fun stuff. Uh, like you guys do up there every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and it went out to, yeah, I, I can curl it. I think you've run it, right? Up in I Burlington. have, I have, but not yes. in 2007. I think it was 2015 I ran it. Well, it was rainy and it was oh. windy off Lake Champlain. Oh. And I have to say, like, it was, a, it was the kind of race where I went like, I stopped to walk maybe my mile 19 or 20 and it started raining so hard that I was like, I better start moving. It's too cold. Oh, <laughs> it was perfect weather the year I ran it. I have to say that. <laughs> well, like, Sorry about that. No, I'm like every fairness, race. Perfect for Carolyn might have been horrendously cold. <laughs> yeah. <for> well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm wearing a t-shirt being like, why isn't it? You know, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, um, no, but that, that was my first marathon and, um, you know, I, I ran a few more marathons and then actually when I was ooh, maybe like 25 or 26, I broke my ankle and fibula <laughs> training on ice right around dark in Virginia. And it was one of those, you know, right between where there's snow and black ice and it's hard to <laughs> gauge the surface mm-hmm. and adjusting still to vision uh, like I always am doing. I slipped and ate it super hard on a curb and just was like, oh that and it hurt a lot i'm like it's just sprained it's just sprained you know an hour later like oh it's so broken so broken so wow i mean there's so many directions we could go right now in this conversation but you you've basically dropped that pretty much right from childhood you've you've had challenges um nothing seems to have stopped you you know you chose a career that was um <laughs> challenging uh with the government overseas you left that career to do the pacific crest trail as therapy and through all this you ran trails ultras you pretty much haven't stopped 
So trail running ultras is challenging enough, even for, you know, 100% fully sighted, sighted, um, sighted folks, sighted people, right? So (laughs) I'm really just wanting to dive deeper into this. Like, what is it like? Tell us some of, first off, let's start with some of the challenges that you've had to overcome running with that disability. It presents different challenges depending on the sort of circumstance and also the terrain. So urban running, you know, the challenges are are very different than trail. You have a lot of obstacles tend to be hard, you know, like metal, concrete, construction sign, dog, person, lots more people. While a lot of people associate that environment as a lot safer, it actually poses a lot more dangers (laughs) to it. Uh, someone with a vision disability to me than running on trail just because of in a city, you know, cars, traffic, all those things do have to come with a greater degree of caution. And I imagine when you fall, it's harder surfaces you're falling. Oh God. Yeah. That's I've I've definitely chipped a tooth. (laughs) Um, But I will say the difference though, particularly for the, um, a lot of the other folks, you know, in the blind community that are runners, The urban community provides a lot of other things. It provides access to people, uh, mainly like uh, running with guides. We can talk about that a little more later, but it's a much more accessible sport than trail running. And when it comes to racing, um, the structure of running on a road in particular, not running like on city streets, block to block to block with random obstacles, but running on an open street during a race is a very different prospect. And Running on those roads, you know, you don't really need to see a ton. You do need to see some or have someone doing that for you, but the risks are a lot lower. The biggest challenge is navigating people and figuring out just kind of course deviation and stuff like that as, you know, turns or it goes up a hill or if you're running in really inclement weather, that could be a different challenge in urban terrain. Like you have, you know, hard metal surfaces, marble. Uh, But from a vision standpoint, like for myself, I know that I can't really see what's directly in front of me. So I have to sort of move my head a lot. Obviously, I don't run with headphones. I have to be a lot more alert of what's around me and who's moving around. You know, and then those hybrid cars, of course, which you never hear coming. Good point. <laughs> yes. Wow, I never really I, thought about this before. Excuse my ignorance. I'm very... No, 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 no. It's... So if you roll up to... Sorry, I'm totally cutting oh, your God, story. Please. If you like... if Say you're traveling for work or something like that. So you, you come into a new city. How does that work in terms of like, is it safe for you to just go out for a run in this brand new city that you don't know? Do you have to track down a guide? I... Great question. Uh, for me, if it's daytime conditions, I can usually get away with not using a guide. However... I really, really do have to be a lot more cautious than I normally am. And I, and I am pretty cautious normally. But for instance, like, um, like business, tra- I was in uh, Toronto just a couple of years ago for work. And, you know, in, in that sort of downtown area of Toronto near the, uh, the big Canada sign and the ice rink and all that, like it was, you know, springtime so you can run, but it's very congested. There's a lot of people, you know, you're definitely running in and out of, you know, you have to, you just have to be a lot more mindful of the traffic signals and stuff like that. And I, I have difficulty, like if a street's particularly wide and it's bright outside, uh, I can't really tell the contrast of the color of the light mm-hmm. so or even see the thing. So I generally just kind of wait to see people do, you know, walk across with traffic or whatever, or look what the dogs do. And would you be wearing anything like a, 
do you wear anything that lets people know that you have a, a vision disability? That's a that's a better question for races, but um, n- not typically. No, I mean I, I dress. You know, I dress like a hunter safety video. I'm very brightly colored, <laughs> and um, typically I wouldn't wear insignia like that if I'm moving around. Next, it's a good thing to mention. Like I, I didn't even start using um, like a cane until I was, you know, maybe 33, 34. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty recent change, and um, you know, it's it's you, you're not going to run with a cane. That's not going to work. Mm-hmm. But the whole purpose of that, beyond for people trying to use it for tactile purposes to see you know feel out where they are is to tell other people hey I don't see well (laughs) um which actually surprisingly still doesn't always work um (laughs) but for running there has to be a greater degree of patience and if I'm ever you know if I'm getting a situation where I don't you know I'm not sure exactly what I'm seeing which is a, a big thing when your central vision is you know pretty much just absent is I stop or I slow down a lot to sort of evaluate like if I'm running through a narrow gap, like, you know, make sure that's a sign, not a person. There's nothing like a, you know, a street, you know, a real dark colored, like fire hydrant that's like perfectly coated, like contrast with the street. And you're like, that'll definitely ruin your weekend. Um, well, you know, I can already see how, how you might be attracted to trails because although a person in a tree might look the same, a person's moving and dynamic, whereas a tree is oh, yeah. still, right? Well, I don't know. Like, am I no, totally well, no, off? No, no, you're, you're, you're spot on. Also, at the same time, like natural terrain tends to just take a, I don't want to say a logical course, but it, you know. Like even the most severe of trails, you know, follow like a creek line where water drained out right. or they follow a ridge line or a switchback. It is pretty predictable like what it's going to do mm-hmm. with people uh, just like driving normally for everybody. Uh, you know, like you have no idea, you know, if someone's going to like I, all the time I stop abruptly when some, someone just beelines right mm-hmm. and then head fakes back left. You're like, OK, this person walks strangely, <laughs> you know, give, give them a second and then run around them. <laughs> You know, and that, and that happens all the time. Uh, and, it, and it's it, it's funny because I'll, I'll sometimes I run with a guide who's, you know, someone who's pretty strong pace and they just run fast through all the, you know, intersections and uh, around people. And I'm like, and they look at me and they're like, oh, man, you paused for a second back there. And I'm like, yeah, I don't I don't mess around with, you know, buses at intersections or, you know, people who are carrying a lot of stuff or like a double stroller plus a dog, you yeah, know, dog. nothing like clothesline by a dog leash. So you got to, um, there's a, elevated level of alertness in urban running and to be very candid about it like you know i, I ran a bunch of mar- road marathons um some even with the blind community with guides and um i always found the big city marathon really stressful mm-hmm. um just because you're you're always if you're you know running in any of the herds you're surrounded by people you can't even get a couple of feet in a different direction visibility my my hearing is completely uh, eliminated. Mm-hmm. Like uh, like if you run Boston or CIM, you know you just have, or Marine Corps Marathon, you get people just screaming, and you're kind mm-hmm. of like, thanks for the encouragement, but I'd love to hear what the guide is saying, or like <laughs> you know listen like what mile I'm on, and my phone tells me my mileage, something you know because I can't read any of the, the clocks or the uh, mileage signs or anything. Well, that brings up like that again brings up something that. <laughs> is worth pointing out in that it is so exhausting to be on that high alert all the time, right? Like that's your sympathetic nervous system on sort of yeah. steroids, right? On overdrive. And so that that's energy demanding, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Um, a lot of the, the studies that look at things like emotional patients, you know, psychologically and sort of particularly with sensory disabilities, there's a lot of frustration. But for that basic, you know, fight flight response when you're surrounded by people and you're relying, like if you're lucky, you're with a guide, you know, if you've arranged that ahead of time. So you don't have to worry about it as much. For me personally, after some of my time in Afghanistan, like I do not do well in crowds mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, just being in a very loud place where I lose another sense yeah. um, can just be like, you know, I'm, I'm all, all on edge, you know, all tupper, upper tight shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely puts a lot of stress. And that's not to say that, you know, running not on trails can't be relaxing or soothing and, and have a guide just as, you know, for safety in that circumstance. You know, and, and very truthfully, I've had my best marathon performance with two guides at Boston in 2018, which is definitely the worst race I've ever run. Um, that was the year that the weather was terrible. Oh, that was horrible. Yeah. Oh my goodness. You have to tell me about that. <laughs> it's, I mean, you saw it on TV and yeah. all the Des Linden and yeah. they all finished uh, when the rain was just picking up and the rest of us ran our races all in that rain. Oh, you know, it was my gosh. between like 35 and 40. And so whatever that is, like between one and four C. Um it was really, really unpleasant. It rained hard. It was windy. And you're kind of like, you can't rain any harder than this. And then, of course, it, you know, it always picks can. up. Yeah, it never always gets worse, though, Will. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it was my first time running a marathon with two guides where they broke it up uh, so they could both run at pace. And, you know, my first guide uh, was a collegiate runner who basically just, like, ran in front of me and yelled at people to get out of the way. And I was like, whoa, he's, you don't have to, you know, like, he's like, nah, it's fine. They'll move, you know. And, I, I was not really used to that. And, um, you know, just cleared the path. And it was amazing how much easier it was when I didn't have to, um, you know, navigate around herds of people when you can't really quite see the edges of them. And So I definitely want to, I want to explore this guide yeah. thing a lot more. <laughs> you kind of haven't told us yet about, you told us about urban running and some of the obstacles there. Can you go into a bit of trail running and compare and contrast yeah. the trail part of it? For us? Absolutely. So all those human factors are mostly out during most races, not completely, but for the most part they are. And the terrain is the main challenge. So, you know, technical single track are the most difficult, particularly when it's really narrow, um, where I basically can't judge, um, you know, particularly if, if the ground is covered by, uh, you know, grass or overgrowth or something, I can't really see it at all. And I have to just kind of step pretty high through those areas. And light contrast is a big challenge for me. For instance, like if you're running in and out of uh, trees, just single canopy trees all the time, and it's going from, you know, light to dark, light to dark, my eyes adjust very, very slowly to um, those kinds of contrasts. And so, you know, if you're going into actually the Miwok Trail is a great example, you go into a dark area where like, this is in Marine Headlands, it's overgrown with redwoods and other stuff, which is beautiful, except when the middle of the day it casts all these patterns on the on the uh, trail, which are, you know, spotted lights and everything, which then completely, for me, obstruct all detail. And it's one of the few circumstances, usually during the day, where I actually kind of run a lot better with a guide. The other limitations, uh, downhill, of course, is like, for me, because, you know, the issues with my central vision, my reaction time is very slow. So I'll be coming up on a route or a big rock or a switchback or a real sharp turn in the trail, and I might not even see it till I'm right on top of it if I'm trying to go at my, you know, best downhill pace for whatever the length of the race is. So I do have to generally slow down a little bit, and um, 
And then there are also there's sections of trail that are just too technical for like, you know, 99% of all people to run and everyone has to walk. I'm curious if your um, lack of reaction time and vision has helped your form a bit in that you have to pick your feet up. Like you can't be lazy. You can't shuffle. No ultra shuffling for Will. Is that, am I off or is that true? No, you're on. Actually, my guides yell at me when they hear my feet um, dragging, my experienced ones. If you, Carolyn, this is, we can you know, talk about um, the Tahoe Rim Trail 100 uh, some other time at full length, but there's a really steep downhill section of the race during the two loops, uh, right before you get into the ski lodge before a big ascent. And it is loose rock on dirt on rock. Mm. Um, <laughs> so it's really slippery and you do all these switchbacks on a mountain bike trail, um, probably for, I don't know how many miles downhill, but with my guide, my guides at night, I mean, that was literally where one of my favorite guides who's, uh, I call her my meanest guide. So she's, she's always good for the tough parts. But she, uh, she would just be like, you know, give me, give me like another couple of feet of space and, you know, mm-hmm. calling out everything, uh, all the turns and everything. So like, that's probably the most dangerous time for me and a guide would be running downhill in the dark on anything really technical or steep. So, okay. You mentioned got using a guide at night a lot. Is that when mm. you typically need a guide other than when you're in crowded areas during the day Yeah, or or light yeah. uh, contrast areas during the day? Yeah. I mean, t- uh, yeah, typically any race I'm going to run, if there's going to be a, a night section or I expect there may be a night section, I, I definitely need a guide. And how does it work? Like, I'm just thinking you're going to run a hundred mile race, uh, the Tahoe Rim Trail. It's very challenging course. You're not going to have the same guide the entire way, would you? You'd have guides switching in and out? Yeah. I mean... Now, I guess I know there's roadrunner listeners and there's ultra listeners, but for um, like pacers are pretty common in hundred milers after the 50 mile mark. Mm-hmm. So that you'd have company to run with, which is pretty standard. Um, I would say the big difference between a pacer and a guide though, is a guide literally has to call out yeah. every obstacle on the trail and the amount of focus and concentration and, and patience with me or whoever they're guiding, you know, yeah. is, is far higher than just a pacer keeping you company. Right. It could be exhausting, I would imagine. Yeah. So for the TRT, for instance, I had three guides and the logistics and everything sort of dictates, you know, where the guides can be, like if they have to hike in to meet me or if we can arrange pickup, drop off, that kind of thing. So any race approaching the 100K distance, like I, I definitely plan for at least one guide. I was just going to say, from what I can tell, I've never done an ultra race like this, but it's logistically complex to start with. And this just adds like one more giant element of like, who's guiding me where and and how are we going to get, you know, make the switch. And I just can't imagine. And, And then as you come into aid stations, is that typically where you have them switch off? Yeah, if they have aid stations, sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no. Typically, uh, I would stack them up at aid stations and try to have them not do more than twenty miles. I have had someone guide me thirty this last summer, which was uh, she was definitely kind of fading in concentration. She did a great job, but yeah, it is really hard to guide someone that long in the dark. Well, I was going to say, do you ever um, do any of your pacers ever get so tired <laughs> you like <laughs> out endure them? <laughs> You drop oh, yeah, your pace, no. yeah. Oh no, 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 no. They only only on the really steep hills, which is sort of one of my things where it's like I make up ground on hills because I don't really require a guide and I you know, you're not gonna fall as far going uphill, particularly steep hills. Um 
I really focused a lot of my training uh, as a climber. So I, mm. you know, I power hike with the best of them. And, mm. you know, it's like running this last, um, you know, virtual hundreds. My guide at the end is like, oh man, you finally equaled out where you just found a, you know, really like a 45 degree hill and then you can pass me. And I was like, yeah, well, it's to be fair. He was he's not, you know, like a full-time ultra runner, but, uh, but it was one of those things where it's, yeah, the hills are my, are my best area going up. You live in a good place for that. <laughs> yeah, that's, we are surrounded. Yeah. So how long does it take for you to become comfortable with and really trust and move efficiently with a guide? It doesn't take very long. I think it's just conditioning people to, you know, basically the whole premise of call outs being like, you know, the direction of the obstacle, whether I have to step up or down, if something's particularly narrow on the trail, those sorts of call outs have to become very fast and instinctive. And like a trail guide, you know, would call something out maybe one second before they hit it, uh, before they run past it, just because there's so many things to call out. Whereas a road guide might have like, you know, 50 meters of advance notice. They're like, you're going to cross railroad tracks in like 30, you know, 20 seconds or something. You know, like, whereas a trail, uh, you know, guiding on trails, like a ton of call outs of all the obstacles. A lot of people, it comes to you very naturally because it's just being consistent about you know, calling it out. And I do have some guides who I really enjoy running with who, you know, like a pacer is great to talk to, but also like aren't very good at quickly describing something. <laughs> and you're, you're kind of like, it's a great story, but just, you know, tell me if it's a big rock or a small rock, if it's left or right, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I think this alludes to that guiding you it, or guiding anybody that has a visual impairment takes a special skill set, right? Like you can't just come off the street and be a guide. It does. Is it a volunteer job? Do these people get paid? Uh, like how does that work? <laughs> well, I, I, I definitely, if, if I have guides come with me, I, I try to, you know, comp their, uh, their travel and ribbon board and all that stuff. And usually I, I always supply booze if that's their, uh, <laughs> their preference is a nice <laughs> gift, but generally, um, you know, it really depends on the nature of that particular, you know, blind, visually impaired runner. Um, you know, someone like myself, I'm very lucky in that I can get away with daytime running and training mostly by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, most people, uh, particularly um, people who have difficulties with field of vision, retinitis pigmentosa, like is one of the most common other retinal conditions like that that causes blindness. And it's a very narrow field of vision. They will need a lot more guiding. Uh, where there's a lot more training and sometimes they will use either a, um, like a loose tether, like a little piece of rope or webbing, or they might use like an actual static, uh, like a rigid pole to connect the runner, uh, with the guide. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't typically ever do that, uh, unless it's like very dense road running races. But for me, you know, I think there's a big difference is I can train a guide pretty quickly to guide someone like me safely. Mm-hmm. The hard part is training them to guide for performance. Right. Okay. So that's yeah. a good point yeah. because it would be different, right? Right. No, no. Just the baseline of saying like, if you're going to run with someone, um, you know, uh, them calling out things, you know, hurt yourself is one thing, but then actually doing it so you're efficient and you're moving well and you're not, you're trying to avoid you know, areas where like I could, like, for instance, I really try to take opportunity of, you know, anything flat or uphill where I can make up a lot of good ground where I might have, have to slow down on a more technical section or downhill. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where like, I have to remind my guides to like, you know, this is the section where I have to run. <laughs> and right. It's almost like two different sports. I would imagine road running versus trail running when it comes to guiding, like for a guide to guide on trails, 
And then to guide within the mindset of an ultra runner who yeah. everybody else on the planet already thinks is crazy. You know, oh, sure, sure. it's it's like so many different things have to come together for that perfect equation. It's the logistics of it is mind blowing. I've got to give it to you, Will. Like as tiring as it probably is for the guide to give you instructions, you've got to be listening to those instructions and responding instantaneously for like a day and a half sometimes, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing, I guess, is they get a little break on the uphill where I really don't need much guiding because we're just you're just going up. But yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of focus for the guide. And then for me, getting him conditioned for an ultra. So it's it's not even just the running, but also like how we do the aid stations and drop bags. And so we do it, you know, relatively quickly. So you're not burning darkness or daylight, you know, at an aid station. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've been lucky in that I've, you know, I've made a lot of close friendships and allies uh, with people who, you know, just are just so giving with their time. You know, most of my guides have been my friends with a couple exceptions when I've done sort of organized road running events with um, groups of blind runners. But yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, someone who is a good friend is, is, you know, works well. And I think the trust part comes with familiarity. Like they get to know kind of, I, I've had a lot of friends be reluctant to guide me because they've been worried about, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to be in good enough shape, you know, for a hundred. And you have to tell them like, just like any pacer, you're like, don't worry about it. We'll be moving pretty slow by mile oh, 80. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and you're yeah. not doing the whole hundred. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, just, you know, point out the really dangerous stuff and handy gummy bears. Yeah. It's pretty cool. You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, like, I guess you're kind of speaking to potentially one of the upsides of having a guide with you is just that companionship, especially if it's somebody that you know, and somebody that you trust and someone you enjoy yeah. spending time with. But are there any other upsides yeah i mean i will say like a seasoned guide because they sort of have the expectation that you can't see like most people and you put them in that position it takes a lot of pressure off me like i can relax more for instance where i might have to stress more if i was focusing really hard on the trail particularly later in races when you're tired just typically of the nighttime it's definitely an advantage to me as a runner where i can i can zone out a lot more about that part of the race and just focus on fueling and following the guide and similarly, like for the aid stations, like it's so easy to just blow time in an aid station where there are all these nice people and the great food and mm-hmm. to have someone, you know, basically come back to you and be like, put this in your mouth, drink this, grab your, you know, extra batteries and let's go. And you're like, okay. I think there's a lot of advantage. I mean, you could get the same at an effective pacer, but I don't think most people really train or condition their pacers quite the same way. I'm I'm just I'm just thinking my brain is whirling. I think, you know, wow, I I worry about which, you know, water bottle to bring, but you've got so much more to think about. That's true, but um, you know, for a lot of things in life, particularly with vision disability, you get used to yeah, preparation, yeah. preparation and planning ahead, yeah. you know, perhaps more than your peers or counterparts. And it, it's like that with everything. It's like that with work and school and you know, at first, because you feel just like with running, you feel like, you know, because I have to slow down, I'm missing out on time, like I have to slow down, or I can't do my best because of this section. But because, you know, all the time, most of my life, I've been conditioning myself around preparation and being ready. After a while, you're just way more ready, you know. So when you're looking at a peer, whether it's at work, or, uh, you know, a race or something, um, your, your drop bags are going to be rock solid. You know, your training is going to be very dialed in. There's not going to be like, oh, just reach in there. It's odds and ends. You're like, no, on the left side, there's an extra flashlight on the right side. Yeah. You know, it's. Yeah. Well, let's be honest, by mile 90, I'm not seeing very clearly either. I'm seeing things <laughs> in the bushes and. <laughs> 
my eyes are caked in salt. Yeah. So it's probably not a, a, you know, I could take a few tips from your uh, rule book, I'm sure. No, oh, you, you hear the elite runners be like, oh, I lost vision there. And you're like, yeah. you don't need that much vision to run at the end of it. You know, you'll be fine. You know? <laughs> All right. Well, oh, okay. Let's let's take a little bit of a, a left turn, just a little bit. Sure. I, sure. I don't want to let this conversation end without spending at least a couple minutes on the Pacific Crest Trail. So I know it's not running, but it's endurance. <laughs> it's endurance. Yeah. And it's how we met. So just if you can just give us a bit of a you know, Cole's notes version on what that was like. Like <laughs> How long did it take you? Did you did you do the entire thing? Did you start in the Mexican border and end up in Canada? Yeah, I mean, I did uh, a little over twenty four hundred miles. Uh, I missed a section in Oregon when I smashed my shin in and uh, went went back into town to get an X ray. And uh, then there was a fire there when I tried to go back there again. So you always have to deal with that. Fire is always a big problem on the PCT. Um, but yeah, other than that, I hiked, um, I basically hiked from the Mexican border, Campo, um, you know, to the southern part of the Sierra. I flip-flopped around the Sierra and then hiked, you know, through Northern California and Oregon till I smashed my shin in, rejoined the trail in Washington and hiked into Canada where I met you. Yeah. Uh, and then I flew back to San Francisco and went back to do the Sierra southbound to finish my, to, to truly finish my miles uh, back in the Mojave when I uh, stopped walking. Uh, and it took about four months, give or take. I could do it way faster now, knowing what I know. I think it's, you know, there's the people on the trail, which are a big part of it. I think when I went into it, I had an idea that it would be this, you know, very solitary wilderness experience. And it's, you know, the first 500 miles are, are not. <laughs> um, 100 hikers a day start the trail. So there's a good chance you'll run into a ton of other through hikers. And then also as you keep hiking, you, you know, you hike between herds of people. So you'll keep catching up or falling back to other groups of people and you'll meet all these hikers, um, which are a big part of the trail. Um, and uh, Southern California was just, you know, I was amazed how many people there were out camping and it's, it's predominantly, you know, uh, college students or recent college grads. And, uh, you know, being like a mid-career, mid-life crisis switch, switch professional, which I definitely met some people with the same background, you know, um, career switch, divorce, um, a couple people with fatal illnesses um, who just, you know, had an eminent need to go out and hike. And for me, it was a, a random documentary I was watching like the first week I was back from my third deployment uh, from Afghanistan. I was super disenfranchised with the whole thing and I was just cleaning my apartment and I was thought it was a book on tape my parents gave me sitting in a box and I watched the whole video and I was like, that sounds awesome. That seems so much better than what I'm doing. And it got me on trail and then you just kind of get used to the um, the tempo of trail. And I think a lot of ultra runners relate to it in the sense of like, you know, you really are thinking after a certain period of time about, you know, mileage, calories and the weight of all your stuff and like the difficulty of terrain and how it affects your movement of travel and weather Logistics. Um, and you're just, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's all logistics. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're you're racing between towns for the next pancakes. I mean, it's just, <laughs> there's, yeah. And do you bring you bring your own like tent and and all of that or? Oh yeah yeah yeah. Oh, sorry. Just to yeah. It's it's you know overwhelmingly all backcountry. Okay. Um. So there's not like huts or any of that stuff on the trail. Occasionally there are a few places very conveniently located to the trail, but. It's not like the Appalachian Trail or, or Europe where you have, you know, endless backcountry infrastructure of huts and, you know, houses you stay in. No, it's it's you're 
I slept like 110 nights on the ground, something like that. Did you ship yourself um, your own yeah. drop boxes, for lack of a better word? I started off shipping 26, and then I cut it down to 19. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. But four months, I mean, is a long time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's, you learn, after a while, you learn kind of like, you probably don't actually need all some of that stuff. And a lot of it, you could just buy, you know, the gas station in those towns, you hitchhike into or walk into. Um, how many boots did you go through? Set pairs of boots. Ooh. Well, I predominantly wore Solomon uh, trail shoes. Ah, um, awesome! So, yes, yes, they're you know really you, you don't want to be sporting boots if you're going to be knocking you know twenty five to forty miles a day. Right. Um, and running, you got to have trail shoes. I mean, it's but the Sierra, you know, depending on when you hit it, can be kind of low cut boot or serious waterproof trail shoe conditions. I mean, it's if you hit it in May and June, you know, it's mountaineering. Um, I did it going the other way. Uh, in summer conditions, which was great, but um, where I rejoined the trail, actually, again, Lake Tahoe, South Lake Tahoe, like I, a friend joined me for a few days just to kind of help get me through the technical section. This is like end of May. And, you know, he, you know, North Lake Tahoe, he got off trail, we said our goodbyes. And I was like, great, we made it through all the tough snow and ice and mountaineering, but there was still like another 150 miles of snow and ice. And, you know, it's... Mm it's that soft snow that's slushy and hard to move in. And then on the North facing slopes, you hit the ice and you just, you know, you're definitely using uh, some kind of traction and the ice axe. The snow walking is probably the best, like, you know, teaching you patience and just, you just have to keep moving. Yeah. Moving through that kind of wet slushy snow for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time with some time on dirt, but in back of the snow, yeah, it takes a lot of motivation <laughs> to keep going. You mentioned about, you know, say you went and did it again, you would know, like, obviously, we learn from our experiences, but no, I don't need this thing, I should have brought this thing. So you would be even more streamlined, but it kind of made me curious, because minimalism, you know, this is like a kind of modern day thing of like, you know, let's just pare down to what we need, use, love, want, whatever. And uh, I'm curious if it helped you hone in on what you really truly do need. Yeah. It's a very harsh teacher very quickly. You know, I mean, Southern California, for instance, like, you know, you learn there's heat, there's dirt, it hurts your feet. It, you have to carry a lot of water, um, but you hit towns pretty frequently. So you get used to that logistical network. But then you get in the Sierra and, you know, you, you learn those other lessons too, where like, for instance, you know, trail shoes that are normally rated for 500 miles aren't meant to be walked in every day. They aren't meant to be wet all day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, those shoes disintegrate much faster. And uh, most of the, the, the boots I used, I mean, they just, 200 miles of uh, wet snow, they just fall apart. I mean, really? Those really high rated. Yeah. I mean, those, wow. uh, those barrel, barrel type boots and stuff. So you might as well wear trail shoes and be comfortable, you know, if they're going to fall apart on you. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think it's just learning like, you know, sort of the speed of that logistics and the things where it's like, yeah, you, you definitely need traction devices earlier than you think. And you, you know, the thing is like I often got in a position of like not carrying enough food and, and I was, you know, probably budgeting for three thousand calories a day, but you you know, you're starting to burn five, six thousand calories a day after, yeah. you know, a month of that and you just don't have as you met me in Canada, I had Manning Park, I was quite I was, you know, probably thirty pounds lighter than I am right now. You um, were thin. You looked like you could use a good pizza. Yeah, 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 that's H hence your invitation <laughs> to join. Yeah, exactly. It's just yeah. like oh, come no. to my table. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. By, by the time you hit the Canadian border, people are like, "Did you see the beautiful lakes?" You're like, "Yeah, they were great. Where are the pancakes?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's totally indifferent to the had beautiful scenery after a couple thousand miles. Um, you know, um, it, it gives you endless time to walk and think, and so that you know meditative state we get temporarily from a little bit of running, endorphins, and stress relief for an hour or two. You know, it's it's that on crack. You know, it's endless time with your mind if you if you go solo but also at the same time you know you hit your low points you know that low point could be like two three days so okay you're you're giving me the perfect segue here to the fact that you have been from the day i met you such a huge inspiration to me so you've done so many amazing things is there anyone in particular who has inspired you on your running journey or in your life it's a great question i mean predominantly everyday people. I mean, most of the people I've just met person to person, you know, nobody particularly famous in the running world. Like, you know, we can be impressed by the ability of those elite athletes. But I think it's sort of, you know, when I meet someone who like, you know, in the you know world with uh, people with disabilities, you know, meeting someone who has got much worse vision than I do is minus hearing and minus a limb and they compete in triathlons at a very competitive level. And you're just like, man, you know, and they work a full-time job and, you know, have kids and, and do it all. I'm so much more, I think I'm so much more impressed by, you know, a single mom, three kids at home, who's knocking out Lake Sonoma and running and passing me in the mud section at the very end than I am with like, you know, the 25 year old hashtag van life elite ultra runner who I'm, you know, it's cool to see what they're doing, but I'm much more interested in people yeah. managing it with their normal life. You know, we actually were just running, we were training um, up in Forest Hill on a random nice day in January. You know, thanks, California. Um, we were running on some of the state's trail, um, my partner and I, and, and we ran into a dude who was you know, 68, just out for his training run. His name's Cooney. And I was like, oh, what do you got going on? He's like, well, I'm doing states in June. I'm doing Hard Rock 100 in Colorado. And then I'm doing Rio del Lago in November. And I said, how old are you? And he's like 68. And you're like, man, no one, no one who, you know, is covered in, Trailer magazine, but I mean, right. those stories are so much more interesting. And you know, in, in the blind community, um, you know, I, I will say, like Kyle Robidoux is one of these dudes who's a, a diplomat of you know blind runners everywhere, both road and trail. And um, you know, he's the one who first sort of talked me into using um, guides to you know further my running. Where I sort of thought at the time I'd be limited to fifty k, fifty mile type length races in the summertime with all the daylight. And he's like, if you're another guide, you can run all night. And, uh, you know, and he just sort of talked me through how to train them. And, you know, I mean, it's, I, I look to the people I know. I mean, that's, that's who really uh, impresses me. And, the, and then the people I train with, I just, you know, the crews, like, uh, you know, running uh, the, I ran a solo hundred um, with guides last summer in the headlands between fires. And the, I had people set up to crew and guide me just as minimal as possible but they just kept coming out. You know, they kept showing up at roadheads. I didn't expect them all set up with chicken noodle soup at four o'clock in the morning mm. off the highway. And, you know, they're like, Hey, great job. I'm like, I cannot believe you guys are still out here. You know, <laughs> It's amazing when the everyday people that are actually in your circle of friends are the people that you're most inspired by. Like that's really when you've struck it rich <laughs> in mm. your life. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, like the ultra running community is, you know, it's like a, a sane asylum on wheels, but we're all crazy together. You know, it's great. It. Um, that is a good description. It's, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, you're going to run over that mountain? Yeah, and I'm going to eat a pizza. I'm like, awesome. Well, I mean, we've talked to enough ultra runners at this point where I'm convicted that ultra running really does make you 
resilient um, for your everyday life. And a lot of people seek it out, right? Just for that exact reason. So we're curious if, um, if you feel like running has made you more resilient in your everyday life. And then if your everyday life challenges have made you more resilient in your running. (laughs) Both good questions. I mean, the running part, um, I mean, it's almost self-evident where it's just, you know, learning the patience of it and the discipline. And then also just, you know, all the, all the lessons of it's like you smile at an aid station, they smile back at you and you leave there with energy, you know, such simple stuff. Um, I think the closeness you have with people about, you know, doing hard things in and of itself is worth doing. So all the other things seem easy. All those lessons are very easy to translate to life. And, you know, for me as a you know blind person, as a runner, like it makes me feel, even though I'm using guides and things, it makes me feel a lot stronger and a lot more self-reliant and autonomous than I, than I would otherwise. Um, you're doing things that are objectively very hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, not to prove to anyone in particular other than just myself, you know, that I can do those hard things if I arrange it and build those relationships with people and put all that prep time and train, I, I can make all that happen, um, which, yeah, I mean, vision disability, I'm sorry to go on, but like, um, you know, it can be very disheartening hitting those challenges over and over again, especially for young people. And, you know, the running is just something that's kept on even through long periods of injury and other stuff. It's always, you know, been great coming back to it. And um, the flip side of that, as you asked, like the normal life lessons, I think um, a lot of my life, you know, I was always thinking, you know, it would take me longer to do well at school and do a job or, proceed in you know status or promotion and work or just my ability to do things like in the outdoors and I you know I always thought oh you have to spend extra time and prep and after a while you know you start to realize that like you can't you can't always do that but I think the best lesson of it is that like because I just became accustomed to being overly prepared uh it may be a lot better at what I choose to do um because I would always think that this will be harder there will be limitations I need to compensate for and it's you know, I used to do briefing slides constantly um, with generals and, and diplomats and stuff. And I, I finally got called out by um, one of my compatriots. He said, like, you know, it's funny, you're flipping pieces of paper in front of you, but I know you can't read it because I've worked with you for years and you just memorized it all and you just say it. And I was like, well, yeah, but if I need to pause for a minute, and pretend like I'm reading a slide, I just look down like I'm reading and I think of what I'm going to say. Oh. <laughs> and he looked at you and he's like, do you have other blind guy tricks? I'm like, I got all kinds of blind guy tricks. <laughs> That's a big part of the, the everyday lessons, which I think, you know, that has helped me the running piece, you know, and every time you sort of think you have your running wired in, you've got it all handled. You're like, no, you never do. You know, and that's, that's one of those big moments of challenge. You know, like I, you know, I had a pretty hard bonk just uh, right before COVID last year running hundred K where I just wasn't trained for heat and my fueling wasn't very well calibrated. And I, Oh man, I puked everywhere. Uh, like mile 40 in the heat. This is a, the shuttle Brian hundred K down in Malibu, California. And, um, you know, it was just sort of, I don't want to say arrogance, but I just sort of, you know, didn't, um, didn't prep as much as I could have and didn't train specific enough for that race. And, um, you know, it gets you, it happens to all of us, but it's a good reminder. Yeah. You just needed a mascot called bonk and then, then you you would have been protected, you know, it's, it's exactly right. (laughs) Will first got to meet my mascot Bonk at Fat Dog, and then and then Bonk came to Tahoe too. So, oh yeah, yeah so nice. He's become part of the Bonk family. <laughs> um, okay, so you know before we wrap it up here, um, yeah. I really 
I really want to know what advice you would give someone who has a disability, whether it's, you know, whatever type of disability, but a person that also has really big dreams and is maybe feeling insecurity or feeling like there's no way I can do this because I have X disability. You have just completely smashed through all those presumptions. Um, what advice would you give to say, say a teenager uh, with a disability that wants to do awesome things? First and foremost, it's like, you know, no one does anything completely alone. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the people, you know, you need to get to wherever you're trying to go, your dreams, your goals, your objectives are always a part of that. And it's one of the most important things is to make good relationships, good friendships, good allies. You know, those, those are the things that will always carry you through the challenges, like far more than, you know, any kind of official accommodation or system or, you know, organization, like it's, it's people, it's good people in your circle, in your life that you're close to that will help you through those challenges. Um, and I think, to tell someone, you know, you can talk to someone who's a teenager and say, look, you know, there are things that will be really frustrating and seem really unfair and take more time for you to achieve the same result. But if you can master getting good at that and just knowing those things, you're always going to be more prepared. You're always going to be better situated to do that. And it's a, it's a difficult thing to master. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard for all of us to be on it all the time, but you really can, you know, compete with, uh, you know, any of the sighted folks or achieve things just as great. Um, you know, it, if you have that mindset of just, you know, you will get tough, you'll get tougher and tougher through getting through those tough things. Um, and after a while, you won't even notice it. You'll just be tough. It definitely, uh, the resilience part, it's just, I, I think it's, it's very emotionally challenging and it doesn't really ever fully go away. I think that's the other hard thing too, to explain that you never, you know, there's never really, you know, oh, you make it as a successful blind person or even just successful any kind of person you know you're not gonna just there's no making it it's a constant process of mm -hmm. trying and doing better and, and it, it just keeps going well it sounds like you're approaching you're running and everything else in your life with this incredible mindset that's what it's that's how it's landing with me is that you look at things as a challenge you don't look at it as oh I can't do that like you you say okay this might take me longer I might have to work a little bit harder at this but I'm totally willing to put that work in which I just think speaks like that's the universal takeaway in my mm -hmm. yeah. opinion you know and it's just so refreshing to hear so <laughs> thank you sure. thank you well, so well, so much yeah. for for sharing that. Sorry, what were you going to say? No, and just, just to follow up with that, at the same time, I mean, sure, I mean, it is what I've always, you know, like all of us, I aspire to, to do as well as I can, but I still get pissed off when I misread someone's facial expression on Zoom meetings or whatever, and I, I <laughs> yeah. say the wrong thing and have to repair that relationship. And, you know, there's... And it's like, um, you know, right now where everyone's... But, but you know, again, I believe me, I fail all the time. I have my my areas of frustration, but it's just knowing that, you you know, you can work out of it, you know, it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. it's just about trying all you can do, you know, and saying like, yeah, just keep trying. And like, there will be times, you know, I think the difference for me now, as opposed to when I was say a teenager in my you know twenties, trying to kind of feel established is that there are things I prioritize to care about more and things that I'm like, that's okay. You don't need to do awesome at that. That's mm -hmm. fine. Just get through that. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. You've learned to so think, pick and choose yeah. where to, where to put yes. your energy. I love that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Another yeah. universal takeaway, right? right. <laughs> and then going forward, like what, you know, 2021 and beyond what's exciting uh, you on the front? 
Yeah. Um, so my partner, Kim, and I are signed up for the Canyons 100K out in uh, Forest Hill in Auburn, California. The course is this, it's completely different than our normal race course, and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but um, that's, you know, if, it, if it's not canceled at the end of April, that's coming up next. We're training for that. And then I'm running um, Run Rabbit Run 100 out in uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado uh, in September. Wow. So as long as we don't get crazy wildfires, uh, I'm excited about that, and I still got to uh, recruit some local guides and maybe fly one in, and uh, yeah, another big mountain race um, on, on the road. Yeah, and then, yeah, way down the line, I mean, there's so many races, you know, I, and, you know, Kim, you can relate to this, but it's just like, <laughs> oh, I, you know, I'd love to run in New Zealand, I'd love to run in Australia, I'd love to do Western States, I'd love to run UTMB, you know, all these, these races, and it's like, yeah, you got to pick and choose, and you know, see where you can get in with the lotteries. Yeah, you need a five-year plan. You don't need a five-month oh, yeah. plan. It's like 15-year yeah, plan. 15-year you know. plan, exactly. That's right. Like, we'll get into Western States in 2030. Yeah. See you there, <laughs> you know. uh, but that's, uh, it's, yeah, but for races like that, and then, you know, on the other end, the hiking side of it, which I'm not doing quite as much, yeah, I would love to do a, a PCT yo-yo hike someday, uh, you know, an up and back in one season. So, uh you know, basically you go Mexico to Canada and back to Mexico in the same uh, year, which uh, I know is doable. The only difficulty you have there is early snow and early fire season. Those are the biggest <laughs> factors in, in messing up that plan. But yeah. Well, the way global change, let's not use the word warming, <laughs> is going, the chances yes. of early snow are probably less than fire. So I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's you. Oh, you, you poor Canadians. I'm always, I'm stunned by you guys. I'm just seeing all the running. I'm like, God, that looks cold. And that looks deep snow and that looks frozen. And... But it, it makes you more resilient, right? Like it, that's, that's right. You appreciate that's those right. days that are only minus 20. <laughs> All right. So we, oh, this has been so fun. I really don't want to end this conversation, but we must. So on, you know, on that note, let's go through our rapid fire questions that we end every episode with. Are you game well? I'm ready. Okay. Okay. Do you have a favorite mantra that you go to when you're running? I have two and I have my dad's, which is basically uh, work hard, have fun, be safe my dad's standard mantra my whole life. And then the other one is basically take good care of your team. They take good care of you. And that's with crews and people you train with and people you coach. It's just universal. Love it. Okay. So if you could be dropped anywhere on the planet to run right now, if COVID disappeared and you could just go, where would you go? In right now in summer conditions, <laughs> desolation wilderness uh, in the Tahoe basin is my favorite backcountry running spot on the West side of Tahoe. Awesome. Do you have a race on your bucket list or a run on your bucket list? I would love to run uh, Infinitus, uh, which up in uh, Vermont, New Hampshire there. That's like the, I think it's a 500K maximum distance. And it's, uh, you know, a figure eight loop, hence the infinity part. And um, the loops are like 51 miles, the 10 day time limit. That's kind of, I'd really like to train towards that in the next couple of years. Okay. So do you have a favorite book, uh, running book or movie? Scott Jurek's uh, second book there, mm -hmm. North, that he wrote with his wife, Jenny, um, about his Appalachian Trail um, FKT attempt um, to set that record. Uh, it's definitely a favorite, mostly because it combines the hiking, you know, long distance trail part and then also the running. Right. Um, and then on top of that, you know, doing the whole thing with his wife as the primary crew while she was like anywhere from like four to six months pregnant and just that whole dynamic 
from both their perspectives. It's just uh, an awesome read. I have to agree. I listened to it in audio and it added an even deeper meaning yeah. when you heard them. Like they would switch back and forth reading chapters. So you heard his That's voice right. and her voice. Yeah, powerful story. I'm a huge Jerk fan. Final question. Do you have a favorite post-run indulgence? Yes. Typically, it's a beer and lunch, and that varies a bit depending on the time of year. I mean, my default is tacos, but it's kind of wherever Kim wants to drive for lunch is where we're at it. So. Well, your partner, Kim, let's just clarify, when he says Kim, he meets his Kim. Um, yeah, not, not Canadian Kim. Yeah. yeah, she's lovely. She's a lovely woman. I met her when we were at uh, TRT. Uh, last uh, in 2019, and uh, yeah. please, please give my um, greetings to her. And I will. that is, this has just been amazing. You've shared so much information that I'm sure is very new to a lot of listeners. Things that they've never even thought about before, and I admit that I never even thought about before. And I know I will be much more observant and attentive if I see blind runner on the trail. Um, and respectful of all of the challenges that you've overcome. Thank you. And if you should see people wearing insignia while running that says blind, visually impaired, or guide, they're just out there doing it like the rest of us and, you know, just try not to pass them too closely on one side or the other. That's pretty much... uh... (laughs) Well, you've given us a lot to think about. You've given me a lot to think about tonight. Again, like Kim said, things I've never even considered before. So it's just opened my eyes so much and I just cannot thank you enough for, for sharing. Thanks for having me. 